0: I was listening to a ritual podcast with David Epstein. They were discussing David's book, Range, and the subject of late bloomers. How many of the most successful people in life find their callings in their forties or later? Why? Because they'd given themselves permission to fail many, many times over in many, many things. They walked away from full-fledged careers to try something new without this all-encompassing pressure to succeed. If they failed, big deal, they'd try something different again, but again, and again, and again, until they found something that stuck. And it was this failing and succeeding and failing and failing and succeeding that created this perfectly unique tapestry, practically by accident, of both resilience and unique expertise that served as the common thread to their midlife success stories. I remember feeling that their conversation was dangerous, that it literally jeopardized my 401k and career, and that I should just stop listening immediately. But with that sense of danger also came a burst of joy, taut ropes loosening around my heart by just a fraction. And I learned two things. In that moment. Number one, I was afraid to dream again. And number two, oh wait, I still had dreams. That is what I like to call a major pivot point in my life trajectory. And this is the Korean Vegan Podcast, where we talk about how to live a more purposeful and empowered life. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Korean Vegan Podcast. This is Joanne Molinaro, your humble. Podcast host. And today we're going to talk about dream chasing. It's a topic I get asked a lot about. I went from being a full time lawyer to now being a James Beard Award winning cookbook author. And I've even actually had clients, lawyer clients, over to my house for dinner to talk about, hey, side hustle, fear of missing out, pursuing your passion, and what that all looks like. So I wanted to spend this week talking about not just my journey, but what I believe are the seven takeaways for strategic dream chasing. I wanna begin this discussion with this great quote by Maya Green. Working toward your dreams starts with a planning phase for which we need adequate time and attention. And I know that's not the sexiest quote. It isn't romantic. It isn't the kind of thing that you're gonna see on a meme or in a YouTube video But maybe some of the quotes I'm about to read are ones that are a little bit more popular. Don't give up on your dreams or your dreams will give up on you by John Wooden. Here's another really popular one. It is better to risk starving to death than surrender. If you give up on your dreams, what's left? And that's by the famous movie star Jim Carrey. And then finally, don't let your dreams become your regrets chase them, go after them, by Catherine Pulsifer. So those are three quotes about dream chasing that I would see on, you know, those posters with the black background and, you know, some really inspiring photograph. But let's maybe pick those apart just a bit. Let's start with that first one by John Wooden. Don't give up on your dreams or your dreams will give up on you. Okay but what about the not-so-great dreams, like the one I had where I wanted to be a ballerina or, more recently, a rainmaking partner at a large law firm? You see, not all dreams are created equal. Some dreams are like broken marriages. You cut your losses, learn what you can from the experience, and then you give up before spending the rest of your life trying to salvage something that no longer holds value. What about the uh, Jim Carrey quote? It is better to risk starving to death than surrender. If you give up on your dreams, what's left? Says someone who, while having gone through some hardship earlier in life, now earns hundreds of millions of dollars making movies. A career that is about as likely as winning the lottery, however hard we dream. Both my parents did nearly starve to death, and it is precisely why they are so against me giving up my job at the law firm to pursue something as dangerous as writing books and creating videos for a living. While most of us are no longer facing imminent death from starvation, we still may not have the luxury of risking foreclosure, car repo, or a reliable internet connection, which honestly isn't a first world thing anymore. Some of us May have more than ourselves to think about when calculating whether dreams are worth pursuing and what's left well mr cable guy a house a car decent wi-fi college education for the kids health insurance and food don't let your dreams become your regrets chase them go after them by katherine What does this even mean? Like, is there a manual that breaks down how one should, quote, go after them? And also, sometimes, probably more times than we hear about, dreams become regrets because we chase them. The truth is, we are far more likely to hear about the success story than we are the fail story, which totally makes sense. How many people are going to go broadcast what spectacular failures they are? Unless, of course, it's part of an overall success story, right? Did you know, though, that one out of five small businesses fail in the very first year alone? That only one out of three small businesses, that's 33% of small businesses, actually survives to see its 10-year anniversary? Realistically speaking... There is quite a bit of carnage out there in Regretland when it comes to the pursuit of dreams. So I know what you're thinking. You're saying, all right, so this uh, podcast was supposed to be about chasing your dreams. And I know it sounds like I'm telling you all to just like give up while you still have some of your dignity intact, but that's not what this podcast is about. We are here to talk about dream chasing. The strategic way. Now, if you'd rather go the, I'm going to keep ramming my head against the wall until either it gives or my skull does approach, by all means, go right ahead. However, if you'd rather hear about everything that I've learned from making the jump, from being a steady paycheck to full-time dream chaser, stick around. This story starts all the way back in 2001, which is when I entered law school. As I've shared in the past, it was not like this part of a master plan, rather it was the direct result of my intense anxiety over being an adult. i just graduated from college and needed to do things like find a job, buy car insurance, like move out. I had school loans hanging over my head as well as my parents' dreams starting to bear down on me, but I had no real plan. Law school was attractive because it did all the planning and goal setting for me. Get into law school, secure a full-time job as an attorney, pass the bar, don't get fired, make partner. This very convenient plan mapped out the next 15 years of my life, which is exactly what I was craving. Someone to tell me what to do while providing a good paycheck with health benefits. So I did all the things in the above plan on schedule. I made partner in 2015 and aspired to become a big time lawyer at a big time law firm. At that point, I'd already given up on one major dream, spending the rest of my life with my first love, the boy I set my heart on when I was only 14 years old. We'd just gotten a divorce the year before, which was the one year I didn't bill as many hours as I normally had. Now with that chapter of my life behind me, I was able to bang out another big year and finally reach the pinnacle of the mountain that had been set for me all the way back in 2001. In 2016, I adopted a plant-based diet and started the Korean Vegan, a food blog, which is why you're all here today listening to me talking, but I started it as a hobby because a colleague said to me, Joanne, you should start a hobby in that way where the subtext is pretty clear, I'm worried about you, please don't burn out. As it happened, I'd started tinkering with a camera in 2010, a Nikon D90 for those who follow cameras. I mostly took photos of things like my office, the fat beads of condensation rolling down my iced latte, my mother's hands, the Chicago River, my own body. I knew just enough about photography to shift the lens to food, or to at least think that I could. I also thought I could figure out how to film, edit, and post YouTube videos using my DSLR in the same way I figured out how to use a VCR when I was 7 years old. I soon discovered that casually making YouTube videos wasn't nearly as intuitive as I expected, and though I managed to bust out a handful of videos, each of which took me over a month to produce, I soon left YouTube in favor of still photography on Facebook and Instagram. Like many other food bloggers, I included recipes in the captions or directed them to my fledgling website. Also, not something that's intuitive, but less expensive than making videos. In 2017, as many of you know, I started sharing stories about my family in those Instagram captions instead of recipes. But what you may not know is that this too was not an overnight development. In fact, I'd started a writing blog on Tumblr, which you cannot find anymore, I've deleted it, sorry, many years before, around the same time I was fooling around with my Nikon D90. Pretty much by accident, I fell in with a bunch of online writers, many of whom were MFA candidates who, you know, shared or inspired each other with original poetry and even bits of prose. Though I'd long ago given up creative writing in favor of briefs and punchy motions and really acerbic demand letters, I dove headfirst into Tumblr hashtag writing until I had four poems of my own published in a couple of poetry journals in 2012. Thus, when I decided to share stories in my Instagram captions five years later in 2017, I once more shifted my not entirely new pen To a topic that was at that time more pressing on my heart. By the middle of 2017, I had learned a lot about food photography just by following hundreds of food photography accounts, many of which weren't vegan. In the show notes, I'll include a link to the written version of this podcast so you can see the before and after side by side comparison of my Instagram photos. And, you know, around that time, middle of 2017, I was just beginning to develop an aesthetic that would eventually become my signature I had figured out how to veganize some of my favorite Korean recipes and I was dating someone that I referred to as the piano guy while trying to develop a book of business at the firm that would validate its decision to mint me a partner and training for my very first marathon
1: 2017
0: was a it was a busy year I will pause at this point in the story because I want to make a few things really clear By now, you should have picked up on the fact that my transition into writer-entrepreneur was definitely not overnight. In fact, I would say it started all the way back in 2010 when I purchased my very first DSLR camera. I was not posting on Instagram every single day. I was probably posting only like a few times a week when I had time. And there were often gaps in my content creation periods at work during which I needed to give my undivided attention to a matter for like not just a day or two, but multiple weeks. From 2015 through 2018, I was on one of the biggest cases of my career as lead litigation counsel in a multi-billion dollar chapter 11 case. I would say that it was on this case that I truly started to feel like I was becoming the badass lawyer I pretended to be for so long. I just happened to have this weird hobby on the side that I rarely talked about with my colleagues or clients. And lastly, it was a hobby, a very expensive hobby. Though I knew other influencers were monetizing their food blogs, I had no interest in that. I was making good money at the firm, and I didn't want the pressure of turning my hobby into a, quote, side hustle. I always wanted to have the ability to say, hey, sorry, I'm too busy. I don't have time to post today. During the fall of 2017, a woman who was also a writer and poet and vegan food blogger, like a huge vegan food blogger, read some of my captions. and She liked them so much, she introduced me to her lit agent, now, by this time, I had around 25,000 followers on Instagram and was flattered that anyone read my captions, much less liked them enough to think I could publish a book. I was introduced to Charlie, whom I would subsequently refer to as the Brit who made all my dreams come true, and he asked me, "'Well, would you like to write a book?' It can be any kind of book, a novel, a memoir, a cookbook. And no, I'm not even going to try and mimic his accent because it would be offensive. (laughs) I selected cookbook because I thought it would be easiest. Charlie gave me one assignment, write one page that describes your cookbook. This took me over a month. He then tasked me with writing a book proposal. This took me over one year. In 2018, Charlie shopped around my cookbook proposal for about a week, and a few days later, I had an agreement with one of the biggest publishing houses in the world. While I cannot disclose the specific terms of the deal, I will say I was absolutely thrilled, like actually shocked with the advance. And my parents were so stunned that I could make that much money off of a quote hobby. This book deal was the first real evidence that I had that, yeah, I can see how someone might make a living off of this. keyword being someone, as in not me though. I worked on my book all throughout 2019. Although my agent Charlie suggested I think of writing my book like I did a brief for a client, as in deadlines matter, I treated the book much more like my Instagram account. I'll write it when my job gives me time to write it. I did things in spurts. Like I'd come home from work and make three recipes and photograph them all on top of Anthony Steinway. Sorry, babe. Or like this old cracked fake leather ottoman. That's where the cover was shot. I told myself I could write the stories in my sleep because it usually only took me about five minutes to write the Instagram captions and thus focused heavily on coming up with the recipes and photographing them. In August, I rented a loft space in the South Loop for two days, flew in my friend and mentor Betty, who is, by the way, the most talented food photographer I know and um, invited sort of coerced, my aunt's cousin and mother to help me prepare style and photograph dozens of recipes for the book. It turned out, of course, that recipe development and photography was pretty easy relative to writing my parents' stories. I had never, ever written a book before, but man... I'd read a bunch of great ones, and I wanted to be a great writer. I had the prose of Min Jin Lee and Aro Quan rolling around in my head like polished marbles without being able to admit to myself that I had neither the talent nor the skill to write anything like them. But I tried. I devoured books like I'd scarfed down chapche. I even took a writing workshop. But my writing came out stilted, uncomfortable, and exactly the opposite of the writing I included in my Instagram captions, the writing that landed me the book deal in the first place. So this is where there's a pivotal change in the trajectory of my life. You know those moments in your life, where everything around you is mundane, ordinary, just like every other day of your life, but on the inside, it's like there's a laser show going on in your brain and thus you remember with meticulous detail all those humdrum things that would otherwise align with the day-to-day. Well, I remember. It was the fall of 2019. I was wearing my navy blue long sleeve t-shirt, the one I got for running my very first turkey trot in 2014. I also had this really gnarly, gross headband on because I always hate having to peel off the stray hairs that stick to my face. I was running on the sidewalk that tracked a baseball field in Lincoln Park Having just passed a porta potty that was frustratingly locked. I'm always super conscientious of where every single porta-potty is in, like seriously, the entire running path of Chicago. I was listening to a ritual podcast with David Epstein, and I'll include a link to that episode below. They were discussing David's book, Range, and the subject of late bloomers, how many of the most successful people in life find their callings in their 40s or later. Why? because they'd given themselves permission to fail. Many, many times over in many, many things. They walked away from full-fledged careers to try something new without this all-encompassing pressure to succeed. The pursue-your-dreams-at-all-cost mentality that is deified in movies and self-made man narratives. If they failed, big deal, they'd try something different again, but again, and again, and again, until they found something that stuck. And it was this failing and succeeding and failing and failing and succeeding that created this perfectly unique tapestry, practically by accident, of both resilience and unique expertise that served as the common thread to their midlife success stories. I remember feeling that their conversation was dangerous that it literally jeopardized my 401k and career, and that I should just stop listening immediately, that my parents would want me to stop listening immediately. But with that sense of danger, also came a burst of joy, taut ropes loosening around my heart by just a fraction. And I learned two things in that moment. Number one, I was afraid to dream again. And number two, oh wait, I still had dreams. I was 40 years old. So I submitted my first manuscript to my editor a few weeks after listening to that podcast episode. And by this time, I was on another big case that was taking up a lot of my brain power. Despite the seed that had been planted by Messrs. and Epstein, the notion of shelving a legal practice I'd worked so hard and long to develop still seemed like completely ludicrous. This was later confirmed when my editor came back to me after reading that first manuscript saying, hmm, hey, I think we need to cut back on that writing and just add a bunch more recipes. To me, it was the confirmation from the universe I had been dreading all along. I can't write. And if I can't write, I can't make a career out of the Korean vegan. So let's stop with this fool notion of quitting your nine to five and doing something else. You're a lawyer and you should be grateful you have the job that you do. And no, I totally did not say that in my mother's voice at all. I spent early 2020, the following year, dividing my time between preparing for evidentiary hearings in my new case and writing a bunch more recipes. In March, 2020 though, there was this thing called the global pandemic that put a crimp in my plans. I was not only having trouble sourcing ingredients for my recipes, but I was terrified of losing my job like everybody else in the world. And therefore, I was way more focused than ever on proving my indispensability to the firm and my clients. Somehow, I managed to turn in a new manuscript with far less writing and about 25 more recipes by the middle of the year, at which time my big case had started to wrap up. I could finally sit back and rest a little bit which is when I decided to start a TikTok account. I will not repeat here what I have in countless interviews and podcasts, i.e. why I started a TikTok, my first viral TikTok, how my TikTok has evolved, etc. Suffice it to say that at one point, I remember calling my mentor at the firm, "Hey, Ellen," in a panic because one of my, quote, clapback posts had gone viral at about 600,000 views and a couple of legal blogs and Yahoo News had picked up on the Fully TikTok lawyer. I had a rather terrifying call with my CEO during which I was convinced I was going to get fired and I deleted the clapback post and promised I would stick to creating only food content. Now, in actuality, I did delete that post, but ultimately ended up reposting it because so many people asked me to. I'll include a link to that in the show notes below. This was around August of 2020 when I had that conversation with my CEO. By that time, I had accumulated about 35,000 followers on TikTok in just a couple of weeks. Fast forward to November 2020. I didn't stick to posting only food content. I had around 900,000 followers on TikTok and published my first op-ed in The Atlantic. This all happened in the span of about four months. And it was then the seed that had been planted a full year earlier finally started to germinate. I prepared for dream chasing like I would prepare for a trial. Over-prepare and collect all the available evidence. I had multiple Excel spreadsheets that set forth timelines and milestones, as well as financial projections and budgets. In my head, I repeatedly did rough calculations of annual gross revenue based upon all available sources of income that were opening up to me because of my TikTok, brand deals, speaking engagements, ad revenue, live cooking classes. I started socking away large chunks of money into a savings account that I could never ever touch while also paying off every single credit card I had. I began to aggressively pay down my school loans, which yes, I still had school loans by that time, with the plan of paying them off completely within a year. I scrutinized every dollar that came in as a result of the Korean vegan and not my lawyer job to see whether it was A, adequate, B, sufficiently predictable, and C, growable. I did this from November 2020 through June 2021, at which point I decided two things. I wanted the Korean vegan to hit the New York Times bestseller list, and I was going to copy Rich Roll and withdraw from partnership when my book was published. Oh, wait, there was a third thing. I was going to run the Chicago Marathon. Now, at this point, I realize I have skipped the part in the middle where we change to more writing being added back to the book and then heavily revised until the manuscript was something I could be relatively proud of. It's not terribly germane to what we're talking about here, so I'll save that bit for a different podcast, one that is more focused on the book writing process and, of course, only if you're interested. By now, hopefully, you all can tell that this idea – of leaving my full-time law firm job for doing something a little different, something that was more in line with what I was passionate about, was really starting to take shape. This planning and evidence-gathering phase was so important. And it's one that not enough people talk about. You hear about all these influencers who are making it big on TikTok, all these people who are leveraging social media for their small businesses, but what they don't talk about is when they were leaving their nine to five job, they were working on planning and protecting that dream. In October, 2021, the following happened. I withdrew from partnership at the firm and became of counsel. The Korean Vegan Cookbook was published and became an instant New York Times bestseller. And yes, I ran the Chicago Marathon. The Korean Vegan Cookbook would go on to be listed as one of the New York Times Best Cookbooks of 2021, as well as the New Yorker's Best Cookbooks of 2021. And on June 11th, 2022, just a few days ago, my cookbook would be honored with a James Beard Award. So all my dreams came true, right? Yay, story over. (laughs) Just kidding. Obviously, I skipped past a lot of things that happened throughout this journey that started in 2001, but this is a podcast, not my memoir. And the point of this story isn't so much to inspire you to chase your dreams. There are plenty of influencers and motivational speakers out there who can do that for you. I'm telling you this story to frame the following seven takeaways on strategic dream chasing. Number one, Don't be too precious about your dreams. Some of them are stinky and deserve to be forgotten. Like, can you imagine if it had been my dream to become a professional basketball player? I'm, by the way, five foot one, or an actual ballerina. Also, some dreams are new and in their infancy and therefore shouldn't be taken too seriously. You might realize after a little research and soul searching that they also deserve to be discarded or heavily revised before your dreams become real You need to get real about what you're good at, what you suck at, what the world has space for, and where the market is saturated, i.e. supply and demand. Number two, ditch the idea that dreams require all out sacrifice right now or you're not good enough for them. That works for some people, but I'm not sure it would have worked for me and it may not work for you. I've always wanted to be a writer, but it was one of those pie-in-the-sky things. So when I started my writing blog in 2010, I got to write, but I didn't view it as my make-or-break moment. I think if I had, I might have been too scared to start, or I would have given up at the first sign of failure without any pressure to do anything other than write when I had time. I was able to sustain an activity that would become a pivotal piece of my dream chase later on. Number three, do the things in your life now that can support the dream chase tomorrow. I was a lawyer for 17 years full-time, which is what allowed me to develop my hobbies, whether it was writing in my spare time, learning how to use a DSLR camera, or developing vegan recipes in my kitchen. I was able to do these things because I had a predictable income that whole time. There was never any need for me to risk starvation. Again, if we're led to believe that risking starvation is what it takes to pursue our dreams, many of us won't ever start. Why would we? Many of us can walk and chew gum at the same time, and not all of us need to have our back up against a wall to try something different. Number four, vision board schmission board. I'm all about goal setting, but setting arbitrary deadlines on your dreams can backfire pretty spectacularly. What happens if you don't hit that milestone when you plan for it, like my very first manuscript? What happens when there's an unexpected setback caused by something entirely out of your control, like a global pandemic? you're more likely to believe that your failure to meet these deadlines is a quote sign that you should give up instead of merely just a bump in a much longer path than you realize. Many people think that my current career path started in 2016 when I began the Korean vegan. But If you were paying attention, you'll see that it started all the way back in 2010 when I began my writing blog and picked up my first camera. In other words, it took me nearly 12 years, that's 70% of the duration of my career as a full-time lawyer, to get to a point where I felt comfortable to take a leap of faith. Number five, let's talk about that leap of faith and add a safety net beneath it composed of backup plans, savings accounts, a 401k, and a career and law I knew I could return to if necessary. Do you know what dreams need more than anything else to come true? Time. If you really want your dream to become reality, don't you think you should invest in giving it every chance at success? Do what you need to do in order to allow your dream to survive for as long as possible, even while incurring heavy losses, sustaining failures, making a litany of mistakes because you're going to do all of those things. However much Hollywood likes to make movies about it, success stories almost never happen overnight. So arm yourself for the long haul. Number six, get honest about your dreams. Sometimes, we used little romanticized versions of our dreams because we're worried about what others might think of them. As we talked about last week, do you really want to be a pole dancer or do you want to be rich and famous? And as I said last week, if it's the latter, that's awesome. Just don't get stuck on pole dancing then because it may be preventing you from realizing your true dream of becoming rich and famous. And finally, number seven, dude Enjoy the intermediate successes, enjoy them. A really wise man once said, remember to celebrate milestones as you prepare for the road ahead. Nelson Mandela. So those were my seven takeaways for strategic dream chasing. I'm not here to tell you not to chase your dreams, quite the opposite. If I hadn't started chasing when I had all the way back in maybe 2010 when I was doing it, maybe unconsciously, I would not be sitting here today chatting with you about what it all means. The reason I wanted to share this story today was, of course, because of this really shocking turn of events in my life, which was this trial lawyer actually won the James Beard Award for her debut cookbook. It was an amazing event. I flew into Chicago at one in the morning because our flight had been canceled and I spent the day kind of roaming about the city, meeting with some old friends, eating some really good vegan food at Vegandale. And then my mom and my dad, my husband, my editor, and I all headed to the South Loop where the James Beard Media Awards ceremony was being held. I was so excited because not only was Lisa Ling hosting the event, she's incredible, but Padma Lakshmi was also giving away some of the awards. So like literally I was in the same room with my culinary hero and I can't even tell you how many interviews I've done over the past year and a half when people ask me who's your hero and I'm like, "Um oh, Padma Lakshmi." I am a huge Top Chef fan. I've watched every single episode multiple times. I've watched every single season multiple times. I actually own some seasons because I bought them (laughs) back in the day before you could just watch them over and over again on your streaming devices. That's how nerdy I am. So getting to meet Padma Lakshmi, talking to her about what her leadership has meant to me, you know, as a woman and as a woman in food, and of course as a woman of color in food, It was just the most rewarding and impactful night for me. You can find pictures um, of me, Padma, my family, my friend, uh, Alexis. You might know her as Black Forager, who also picked up a James Beard Award. All of those photos you can find in the link in the show notes below to the written version of this podcast. It was a pretty incredible night. So here's the thing. I did not think I was going to win. In fact, I was so certain that I wasn't going to win. Like, why would the James Beard foundation award me with this? Like it it just, in my mind, it made no sense. And You know, in my category, there were two other books that were stunningly beautiful, written by people who had been doing this far longer than I had. And so I just, I didn't think I was going to win. I'm sitting there listening to all these beautiful speeches as people were accepting their awards. And I'm thinking, yeah, I don't need to do that because I'm not going to win. I'm not going to win. And then, you know, my category shows up and my dad gets super excited, you know, because he sees my book up on the large screen as one of the nominees. And I'm like, oh, that's so cute. And the winner is... The Korean vegan and like by then, like it was like a whirlwind tunnel in my head. I couldn't hear anything. There was like a ringing noise going on. I didn't know what to do. I started almost hyperventilating the thing is, you all, I take a lot of pride in my presentation skills. I am a trial lawyer. I've had many opening statements, closing arguments, oral arguments. I've argued things from podiums. I've done a gajillion speaking events. And, oh, by the way, I do 60-second videos where I'm doing voiceovers all the time. I am practically hyperventilating at the podium. Like, you can barely understand what I'm saying. And, yes, yes. Despite taking a great deal of pride in the fact that I had yet to openly weep or start to cry or even tear up at any of my book signings or events, this was the straw that broke the camel's back and I started crying, like openly crying up at the podium. I was so moved and I was extremely grateful that my parents could be there to witness this moment. The speech is about two minutes long and I'm gonna play the whole thing here, mostly because I wouldn't have been there without the Korean vegan community, which is composed of all of you. So, prepare to cringe. The nominees are. The Korean vegan cookbook, Joanne Lee Molinaro. To Asia with love, Hetty McKinnon. Vegetable kingdom, Bryant Terry.
1: And the winner is. Terrible at this. The Korean Vegan Cookbook, Joanne Lee Morano. And no, I didn't even notice that he said my name wrong because by
0: that time, yes, the ringing in my ears had begun.
1: Hi, thank you so much. Um, this is a little surreal. I only even know about the James Beard because of Padma Lakshmi and, and Top Chef. So to be in the same room with uh, Kwame and Gregory and people that I've worshipped from afar is a little bit um, breathtaking. Um, I want to thank the uh, James Beard Foundation. I want to thank my fellow nominees. Um, Eddie and Bryant wrote incredibly stunning and beautiful books. And I'm quite frankly uh, a little astonished to be in the same category with them. Um, I want to thank my team at Avery, including my wonderful editor, Lucia. Um, I had a team that made me cry regularly because they were always Team Joanne. I want to thank my agent, Charlie, who I often call the Brit who made all of my dreams come true. In case you don't know, I am a trial lawyer, and I am sitting here right now. <laughs> I don't even know what's happening. Um, <laughs> um I, I want to thank, obviously, my, um, my husband who one day woke up and said, you're the Korean vegan, you should start a YouTube channel. Um, and that's what I did. Uh, I want to thank uh, my TikTok and my Instagram and YouTube community, without whom um, I probably wouldn't be standing here today. And then, of course, I want to thank my mom and my dad <laughs> because their stories deserve to be seen and heard. And- I'm so very grateful to them and for their courage and for their vulnerability. And I'm so very grateful to every single one of you who have seen and heard them and made them feel like they're important enough to be in a a cookbook. So thank you very much, everyone. Thank you.
0: So that was the acceptance speech. And as I said there, I'll repeat again, I would not have been at that podium without all of you. So thank you very much for every single one of you who has been supporting me from the very beginning all the way back in 2016 to maybe you just joined for this podcast. I will be including a link to the video of that entire event, the entire James Beard Media Awards ceremony in the show notes below. We have a handful of announcements, admin type items. Number one, in case you missed it, I shared a recipe for tofu fried rice after a terrible Chinese takeout experience. You all know there's really nothing like an awful $20 meal to inspire at least me right back into the kitchen. I also added three additional recipes to the Korean Vegan Meal Planner, including the Cajun pasta, mushroom artichoke casserole, and mushroom mac and cheese. Each of the recipes in the Korean Vegan Meal Planner will include nutritional information shopping lists and the ability to customize servings, like if you want to make this for dinner versus you want to just make it for yourself. The Korean Vegan Meal Planner already houses 2,000 plus recipes, which I am obviously adding to all the time, like I did this week. Last week, we made pop and added that to the Korean Vegan Meal Planner. Speaking of TKV Meal Planner perks, the next live cooking demonstration for TKV Meal Planners will be on June 29th, 2022. I'll include a link to register for the Korean Vegan Meal Planner, which then includes not just the 2,000 plus recipes, but also this live cooking demonstration as promised, We are going to be making tofu fried rice, which is really, really delicious. But I have a few tricks up my sleeve to make it super delicious, and I want to share them with all the TKV meal planners in this live cooking demonstration again on June 29th, 2022. For those of you who are on the fence about the TKV meal planner, look, You don't need to be married to it. There is an option for you to just try it out for one month. And not only, like I said, will you get to enjoy this live cooking demonstration, then you'll get all the 2000 plus recipes, you'll get food coaches, nutritional information, newsletters all the benefits of being a TKV meal planner. And of course, you can cancel any time. Like I said, I'll include a link to the Korean Vegan Meal Planner, which will also allow you to enjoy this live cooking demonstration on June 29th in the show notes below. A couple other announcements. Toronto, yes, I am finally headed across the border. I've been working with this incredible nonprofit organization called Han Voice, which is headquartered in Canada to celebrate a pop-up art exhibit People's Museum of North Korea. I mean, how provocative does that sound? The event will be on July 2nd, and you can buy your tickets in the show notes below, and I will see you there, Canada. Well, not all of Canada, at least Toronto. The winner of the We Were Dreamers giveaway has been notified, so please check your inboxes and spam to see if you are the winner. And thank you to everyone who participated. Finally, check out in the show notes below a link to a chat that I did with Michelle E. Lee on the Washington Post's Race in America series. So every week I ask listeners to submit questions that they have and they can range from like super serious topics about, you know, career changes, body dysmorphia, love to, you know, less serious topics like this one. Caitlin asks, looking for a kimchi dumpling recipe and dipping sauce recipe from the Chibo class. Chibo was a virtual cooking class I used to do a couple years ago that I took with you a while back. I just love your class. Well, thank you so much, Caitlin. I love doing virtual cooking classes, which is, again, why I'm so excited to be able to do them with the Korean vegan meal planner. That specific recipe, the kimchi dumpling recipe, was actually a recipe from my cookbook that I was permitted to do sort of like a sneak peak of with everyone who took that virtual class. Hopefully, Caitlin, you should have a copy of my cookbook. But if you don't, you can find the recipe in the link below. As to the spicy dipping sauce, that too is in the cookbook. However, you can mix up the following for a really quick and easy version. A quarter cup of some soy sauce, two tablespoons of maple syrup, or whatever sweetener you prefer. One tablespoon of rice vinegar, apple cider vinegar, whatever vinegar you have. One tablespoon of toasted sesame seeds, one teaspoon of black pepper, and two scallions chopped. You mix that all together and you got yourself a wonderful dipping sauce. Thanks, Caitlin, for submitting your question. If you have a question, and again, it doesn't have to be about cooking. It doesn't have to be about, hey, where can I find this recipe? It can be about anything. And you're just looking for third-party advice, something a little bit more objective to round out that perspective, you can submit that question in the link below. As I did last week and the week before, I will also include in the link below a few of my feel good links. These are just links to some TikToks that I really, really enjoyed. Some of them will make you cry, some of them will make you laugh, and some of them will just make you think a little different. Parting thoughts. Hustle culture is now mainstream. It's no longer good enough to have one full-time job or to be a full-time student. If you're not actively pursuing a quote side job that is designed to one day be a multi-million dollar success story, you're apparently doing something wrong. Bullshit. This is the same sort of nonsense that motivational speakers and self-help gurus are feeding you to line their own pockets to create demand for their so-called expertise in self-actualization. When in reality, all they're doing is exploiting our self-doubt for their gain. It promotes toxic productivity, ratifies the pursuit of commercial wealth at the expense of our well-being, and reinforces our deification of that elusive 1%. In the end, Hustle culture has turned FOMO into a disorder, and it leaves us feeling more purposeless, more powerless, less joyful. There is nothing wrong with working a nine-to-five job that you don't love, but you don't hate. There is nothing wrong with coming home from that job to throw the casserole in the oven, pick up the kids from drama club, basketball practice, run through the bills, collecting them the top left corner of your kitchen table, hefting that casserole out of that oven, and tucking in while discussing anything other than what you did during that nine to five, because it isn't all that interesting to you. There's nothing wrong with spending your free time, reading a good book, watching a good Korean drama, or the most recent Tom Cruise flick or FaceTiming with your best friend who's spending a month in Barcelona and a dusty BNB with mediocre Wi-Fi and a sleepy eyed neighbor who speaks not a lick of English. There's nothing wrong with any of these things, unless you decide there is my parents. Gave up the life they knew in South Korea to take a gamble on the quote American dream. They were cash poor, spoke virtually no English, and had no friend of a friend who could get their resume in front of so and so. They worked their entire careers at jobs that they didn't love but that they didn't hate. My mom was a nurse for nearly 40 years, mostly in the emergency department. My father was a mail sorter for the United States Postal Service, working the night shift from 2 a.m. to 10 a.m. for as long as I can remember. Their purpose was clear, give their children the safety they wished they had when they were growing up. They didn't have a side hustle and I'll put their story right up next to Gary V's any fucking day of the week. Instead of asking yourself, what is your side hustle? Ask yourself, what is your purpose? From 2001 through 2021, my purpose was to be a lawyer to learn everything I could about being an advocate, to push myself through the big law furnace until I came out the other side with the kind of metal I knew would protect me from far more than opposing counsel. When I got a divorce in 2014, I discovered a different purpose, to share my stories with all of you. And it turned out that between nursing a writing blog, taking photographs of Chicago, and putting together summary judgment briefs, I had amassed a lot of skills as a storyteller. It took me more than a decade to transition from telling my stories as a hobby to a full-time job. And I say all this to remind you that a quiet joy can be just as powerful and life-affirming as a noisy one. That life isn't really at all about what the day brings to you, but what you bring to the day. That chasing the dream is always a full-time job, One that begins and ends and begins again for anyone who makes room in their heart for hope. If you feel locked up, don't wait around for the door to materialize. Get down on the ground and start building it. Spend a few minutes a day or all day long if you want, however long it takes. You'll find that you won't have just erected a way out. You'll have constructed the courage. You need to walk through it. Thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode of the Korean Vegan Podcast, where we talk about how to live a more purposeful and empowered life. If you enjoyed this episode or any previous episode of the TKV Podcast, I would so very much appreciate it if you left a rating and a comment below in whatever platform you're listening to this podcast. And of course if you really like this episode or any of the other TKV podcast episodes, man, it would mean so much to me if you shared that with your friends, your family, your colleagues, or anyone else you think might be inspired by what we talked about today. In the meantime, I wish you as always the loveliest and most wonderful day until next week.